Welcome to the Daily Boogie. And welcome. We're back. Back for another week. A little bit late. Just a day or two. It's fine. Everything is fine. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you once again. Hope you settle in. We've got plenty to go over. Plenty. Too much, in fact. Too much to go over. Get yourself a drink, get yourself a snack. We may be here a while. All right, let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Daily Boogie Podcast. I am Boogie Bumper. Going to be with you for the next hour or so, probably longer. Probably longer, because I have over-prepared. And in looking at the things, like I, I usually over-prepare for a show and then try to cull stuff out. And I'm looking at all of these items going, I don't, I don't really want to cull that. I want to keep that one. Have to, that has to be in there. And then I look at the next thing. I'm like, no, that has to be in there too. We can't get rid of that. No, that has to be in there. So now we're just going to have to burn through so many items. Thanks so much for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to see you in there in the chat. Yes, thanks for your patience. Yesterday was no good for broadcasting. And it wasn't so much the noise, it was the fact that I had to remain awake for about 36 hours in order to take deliveries for people who want to destroy things in my house and rebuild things. So <clears throat> that's why I, c I couldn't come on air. I was a drooling idiot, more so than usual. <laughs> You'll be pleased to know. Yes, it's sexy new background, sexy new sets. Thanks to the general. We've spruced everything up a little bit. See, even if I have a couple of days where I'm not on, I'm still thinking, all right, what can I do in those couple of days? Tell you what, let's spruce up the YouTube. Let's do something a little bit different. So thanks everyone for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Lots to get through. We are obviously going to go over to Europe, Europe, discuss the upcoming European elections, which I think is a day or two from now. I don't know. There's a lot of people very excited. We're going to touch in with the Brexit party. They had a rally today or yesterday. I think it was today. And we're going to cover some of the corporate media coverage of the European election, which you'll be pleased to know is right down the line, very unbiased, very favourable for the Brexit campaign. <laughs> no, of course not. That would be silly. <laughs> that would be fucking stupid. Of course not. But we're going to cover it nonetheless. We are going to do a little bit of follow-up down here in Oz as well, and I've got some of the wackiest stories from around the web to regale you with on this, a Tuesday night. So thanks everyone for joining. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for the people who've joined in on the Discord. I've got a couple of items to share from the Discord. So it's perfect. Like, thanks everyone who's joined in the Discord and posts articles and stuff, because otherwise I wouldn't have seen them. You know, I can't be everywhere at all times, so... Every now and then somebody posts something. I'm like, oh, there you go. Didn't know that one. May is gone now, right? No, she's still there for now. She's still there for now. She might not be there very much longer, but the European election is separate to the local uh, UK election. So you've got to keep that in mind. It's a different entity entirely. But we will go over all of that. Just before we get rocking and rolling, reminder, if you want to become a supporter of the show, 
please head over to patreon.com forward slash boogie bumper. Become a uh, subscriber by hitting that subscribe button on your preferred podcast player. And of course, if you'd like to vote me in, and you can do so by following me on Twitter at boogie bumper. Let's get right into it, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Well, after the miracle win by the coalition in the Australian election, China has put out their opinion. (laughs) Chinese state media says shock federal election victory will impact China-Australia relations. China's state-owned media outlet Global Times has released an editorial saying it is far from optimistic about Chinese-Australian relations after Prime Minister Scott Morrison's unexpected election win. In an editorial posted to the newspaper's official WeChat account just after midnight following the election, the newspaper said Chinese people were concerned about the impact Mr Morrison's election will have on foreign relations. Well, can I be the first on behalf of all Australians to say with respect to China, me so sorry. Me so sorry. Okay. Me so sorry. You not want? You not like? You not like? Me so sorry. <laughs> sorry. Had to be done. I know it's an incredibly hacky thing to do to do bad Asian accents, but I just I couldn't help myself. Uh, the shock election result. I think you'll find in China they refer to it as the shock erection. Very bad erection. This erection result also means that China Australians uh, Australia relations, which have deteriorated in recent years under the leadership of the ruling coalition formed by the Australian Liberal Party and National Party, will continue to have uncertain prospects. Damn, damn those damn Australians. Those damn Australians. You see, what you have to understand here, recently in recent times, we've had China trying to buy in. China already owns a large amount of real estate, a lot of farming um, assets. They also own a lot of mining assets here, which they ship straight back to China. They also tried to buy into our water supply and our electrical supply. And on that particular deal, Scott Morrison came in and said, eh, you know what? I don't think so. You know, I don't think I want the Chinese state government controlling our electricity and our water. So we're going to put the kibosh on that particular deal. And then, of course, after that, China came out and said, this is horrible. You're racist. (laughs) As, As you would expect. We've also had Labor politicians in recent years, ladies and gentlemen, forced to resign from the Senate because they were taking too much money from the Chinese government. We had a former state premier, a guy named Bob Carr, who then became a federal member of Labor in the Senate a few years ago, who now is the official spokesman for the Chinese business lobby, which is also known as the Chinese government. And every time somebody comes out and speaks against a deal where the Chinese government is trying to buy into infrastructure in Australia, he comes out and accuses everybody of being racist and stupid and not understanding how beneficial this relationship is. So it's good times down here in Oz. According to statements made by the Australian media and some Labor Party politicians before the election, it seemed that if the Labor Party wins the election, the party will bring some positive changes to the China Australia relations. The editorial pointed to comments from former Prime Minister and Labor leader Paul Keating, who said Australia's spy chiefs are nutters who should be sacked in order to improve relations with China. Yes! Ladies and gentlemen, the Labor Party, the party of the people, let's remove the head of the Australian spy agencies because they don't like China very much. (laughs) And I mean, if you think about Huawei being in the news, manipulation on uh, devices, corruption, buying into Western governments, right? 
Nah, let's let's get rid of the chief of the spy agency because he's not in bed with the Chinese. He's not in bed with the Chinese government. That's why he should be sacked. Paul Keating, the former prime minister of the Labor Party who used to be friendly to China, publicly urged the Labor Party to expel the head of ASIO immediately. ASIO being our equivalent to the CIA. After the party wins the election, he said the madman had destroyed China-Australia relations. <laughs> so again, on behalf of on behalf of all Australians everywhere, I would just like to extend an olive branch to the Chinese communist dictatorial, totalitarian, imperialist, expansionist, militaristic regime. Miso sorry. Uh, I hope everything works out with your islands. I'm really sorry that you get got a little bit upset. And hopefully we can be friends again one day. One day. But not today, it seems. Miso sorry. In other news, refugees attempted suicide after Australia's election. <laughs> This never ends, does it? Activists say, ah, activists say, you need to vote in the Labor Party, otherwise I'll kill myself. That's a rational thing to do. That's a rational. Like if you're in a relationship with somebody and it's a little bit on the rocks and the other person in this relationship threatens to kill themselves if you leave them, that's a good reason to stay, don't you think? That's a good reason to do what they want. I mean, let's be reasonable, let's be fair, let's have, let's have empathy. If you vote for that other party, I will kill myself. Well, we better not vote for that other party then. Gee, that's a good argument. We better stay reasonable here. A shock Australian election result has sparked a wave of suicide attempts among refugees held in the Manus Island Detention Centre off Papua New Guinea, activists say. Detainee and activist, oh, he should get two paychecks. Beruz Bukhani told CNN at least nine people have attempted suicide since the election results were confirmed on Saturday, with three now in hospital. Almost 1,000 refugees are currently being held in offshore centres in Papua New Guinea and the island of Nauru at the behest of Australia, the country in which they had been attempting to seek asylum. Human rights monitors such as Amnesty International have reported hellish conditions, abuses and neglect. There you have it. Uh, interestingly enough, the refugee centres were actually filled up over capacity thanks to the previous Labor government, men, women and children being held behind barbed wire, big cages, you could say, due to their immigration policy. So Labor got in, changed the immigration policy. Next thing you know, a whole bunch of people try to get into the country illegally. All of the refugee centres fill up. Thousands of people drowned trying to get here. When that Labor Party was removed at the next election, they then spun 180 degrees completely around and blamed the coalition for pe too many people being in the refugee camps that they actually filled up under their watch. <laughs> it's like wherever you go in the Western world, the politics of certain parties does not change. The tactics does not change. We create the conditions to fill up the refugee camps. We then blame the people who defeat us at an election for filling up the refugee camps for the refugee camps being full. Believe it or not. I want to give a little shout out here to one of our listeners. Lucifer Sam. Some of you may know him as that, that annoying libtard troll. I fucking hate him. I'm blocking him. But I just want to give Sam a little bit of a tip of the hat here. Sam posted this in the Discord channel in the Australian politics thread 
and he said, I agree with this 100, what was it, 100%, 10 out of 10, I agree with this chick, who is she? Because he's been trying to learn about Australian politics, right? Eisenberg, thanks for joining us. He's been trying to learn about Australian politics and good good on him because not many people do, even in even here in Australia. <laughs> Most people don't care about Australian politics. So it's good. It's good to know. I, I like to learn about, you know, the politics in other countries too because I think, you know, sometimes there's ripple effects that go from one country to the next. Yes, he's totally a libtard troll. So you'll be pleased to know with Lucifer especially, just because he's a Democrat doesn't mean you have to block him. Doesn't mean he's unreasonable. You would probably agree with Lucifer nine times out of ten, depending on the issue. And he has probably been blocked by more Democrat journalists than you have. So just so you know, he gets called a sexist for being against Nancy Pelosi. He gets called a racist for asking questions about immigration policy and nationalism. He gets blocked by all the big liberal Democrat accounts. So, So give the guy a chance. He posted this in the Discord. I haven't watched it yet. Let's check it out. If you watch enough of our national broadcaster, you will learn that Australia is racist. You'll learn that Australian values are racist. And for some people, even the Australian flag is racist. Oh, of course. Indeed, Australian anti-fascists are known for their flag burning. Oh, that's no way to get it going, mate. Australians are often encouraged to feel guilty about their national pride. Middle-class people living in the inner cities are often embarrassed about our Western heritage. Today, any Australian who does not express shame about our history of colonisation is basically guilty of a hate crime. Shame! Shame! But nationalism is not racist. Nationalism is the antidote to racism. Let me explain why. People are inherently tribal. There is no way of getting around this. Tribalism is part of human nature. We are so tribal that we derive pleasure from fighting on behalf of our clan or tribe. Starting from the 1960s, there have been literally hundreds, if not thousands of studies demonstrating how easy it is to trigger people's innate tribal psychology. We know that if you split people into groups and emphasize group differences, people will start competing against each other. Most of the time, humans group together according to race. However, this is not always the case. One of the best analogies I ever heard was from a guy who now works in politics. And I'm not sure if he came up with it or not, but at the time it made sense to me. Um, He was arguing with people on the concept of nationalism and uniting under one banner, under one flag. And ironically, he was having this argument with a whole bunch of football fans from the same team. Now, he said, now, if you think uniting, if you think tribalism is bad and uniting under one banner, one flag, one emblem is bad with all different groups of people, why the hell do you all go to the football and wear the same shirt? And they're like, what do you mean? He said, well, you don't know all of the people in the stands. You don't know their particular backgrounds. You don't know where they came from. You don't know their socioeconomic standing. You don't know their ethnicity. You don't know what language they speak at home. You don't know what they ate for breakfast. But when game time is on and you're all marching into the stadium as one, all wearing the same shirt, gee, it feels good, doesn't it? And all of those other differences melt away. Because when the team scores, we all cheer together. When the referee gives us a bad call, we all boo together. We boo the umpire. So if you think tribalism and, you know, getting together under one flag and one banner is an inherently bad thing, 
then why do you all go to the football dressed in the exact same shirt and cheer for the exact same team and the exact same players and boo the opposition as one, right? I thought it was fantastic because it gave a lot of people who have never considered things in those terms an opportunity to reflect and go, shit, that actually makes sense. Let's carry on. A 2001 study found that people are able to forget about race when they are in a group that shares a larger identity. This often happens in sporting teams and it also happens in the military. <laughs> Australia is. has a long tradition of Indigenous soldiers fighting alongside white soldiers, for example. People taking pride in their country and looking past racial, class and gender differences is the beauty of nationalism. When people sign on to patriotism, there is no limit to the cooperation that can be unleashed. And the point is this, the innate psychology of tribalism doesn't just go away when nationalism is discouraged. People will remain tribal, they will just find a different way to express it. Correct, correct. I think part of the problem here, there, is, there are too many people in today's modern world, in politics, we cheer for the laundry, exactly. There are too many people in this modern age of politics and, you know, who are essentially philosophically inept, who suspect, well, if we just do away with nationalism, then there will be no tribalism, which of course isn't further from the truth. And in fact, if you want to look at the people on, you know, primarily the left who these days seem in the western world seem to be more anti-nationalist even though nationalism is not a left-wing thing or a right-wing thing i mean just look at the chinese government for example there have been plenty left-wing nationalist movements over the course of human history and there will continue to be plenty of left-wing nationalist movements in years to come so the whole thing that nationalism is a right-wing ideology is you know it's an abortion it's it's not it's not even getting out of the womb when it comes to ideas there's always been nationalism on the left. But uh, I think too many people now think that if you just do away with nationalism, then tribalism will go too. But the very same people who believe that also have tribalism on their side of politics. You've got the moderates versus the hard left, the communists versus the socialists, the Marxists versus everybody else. So they're still tribalized. They're still in tribal groups. Even if the thing that unites them is the fact that they all hate nationalism, they still have tribal allegiances within that framework of ideology. That's how redundant this whole argument is. Let's carry on. The most obvious one being through race. Now, you might say, well, what about diversity training? Now, Heisenberg asks in the chat, what happens when nationalism gets hijacked by racial ideology? Well, who's, who's saying that nationalism gets hijacked by racial ideology? You know, if you're talking about ethno-nationalism, again, the Chinese state is a prime example, right? Most most states in uh, Asia and Africa, I mean, some of the biggest genocides that have happened in human history have not been in Europe, but in places like Africa and South America and Asia, where from one tribe to the next, people will be eviscerated and wiped out. So ethno-nationalism, and you can you can say that go, perhaps it goes back to a different time when national borders weren't so established, when territory belonging to a certain people was essentially the nation, when there were no official recognisations of governments around the world and ruling dictatorships and kingdoms, where it was essentially all of our people from a certain ethnicity 
occupy this certain piece of land. That's our place, right? So you can say it stems from that. But I wouldn't say that nationalism essentially gets hijacked by ethnicity. Ethnicity and nationalism are always there as concepts. One doesn't necessarily become the other. I would suspect that one is and the other is. And ethno-nationalism is a thing and civic nationalism is a thing. But, I mean, if you're going to live your life thinking that every time somebody has a nationalist view or, you know, thinks considers foreign relations in a pragmatic way, I, th- I forget the name of it. There's a term that political scientists use for this particular school of thought when it comes to nationalism, and it's it's gone past me now. It stems out of some philosophers in the 1700s, but they would say that, you know, the world is built up of nations and everything is a war of all against all at all times, right? So if you're going to go around thinking that anytime somebody has a nationalist view that they're, you know, they're on there, it's like a gateway drug to ethnicity wars and genocide and stuff like that, it's just plainly false. It just doesn't exist. Now, that's not to say that ethno-nationalist movements don't exist, but one doesn't necessarily become the other. It's not like a Russian doll situation. And I would argue that in times of prosperity, right, when nations of the past have fallen and become balkanized to a degree, it's when economic prosperity is lesser because then it becomes easier for people in the nation to point to different ethnicities and different groups and different ideologies and then start playing them off against each other. When everybody is making money and everybody has a clear, you know, a clear route to economic success going from one ladder to the next ladder to the next step on the ladder and so on, you'll find the differences between different groups and peoples within a nation become less less pronounced, so to speak. But as soon as the money dries up, it's it's more easy for people to stand around and say, hey, I know why you're broke. It's all those guys over there. It's all those guys. And the question still remains, if you're not going to unite under a banner, if it's wrong to unite under a single banner or a single flag because that is racist, quote unquote, then what are you going to unite under? You have to unite under something, especially if you're going to go around preaching unity. Oh, we have to come together. We have to be unified. Okay, around what? Are we going to be unified in the fact that we don't want to be unified? That seems pretty logically redundant to me. Let's carry on. Aren't there programs now which train us out of our unconscious racial bias? Can't we be anti-nationalistic and anti-racist at the same time? It's doubtful. A 2009 study found that diversity training hasn't ever really been tested properly. It hasn't been tested through an experiment. That means that despite the hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent on it, we actually don't know if it works properly. The reviews that have been done aren't encouraging either. A 2009 review found that it didn't work and a 2014 review found that it actually backfires. So what does work? What does bring people together? and encourages people to cooperate. Nationalism does. It's worked for a long time. It's just... <laughs> I also think it's very cute, the fact that nationalism these days is painted as inherently evil and wrong and dangerous and dark and seedy. It is, it is the domain 
of angry white men with shaved heads and neck tattoos who just walk down the street beating people who look different, right? And so then you've got the juxtaposition of this like attractive young lady who speaks in a very soft and flinty voice and says, well, nationalism is wonderful. <laughs> I think it's great. It's a little bit of a shock to the system. What is the cure for racism? Why? It's nationalism, silly. Yay. <laughs> I mean, if she was if only she was doing the if only she was doing this video in a onesie, then every the, the illusion would be complete. That's what we need. More pro-onesie, pro-nationalists on the internet. And you often see it in the military. Why? Because soldiers are there to be in service of their country. Now People who that's, a, that's a great point too. If we think nationalism is inherently bad and evil and wrong, then maybe there should be a white army and a black army and a Hispanic army and an Asian army. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Every group in society should be equally represented, right? So why are they all fighting for, under the same flag? If nationalism is inherently bad and evil and wrong, shouldn't there be, you know, an African-American army, a Latino-American army, Right? And they should have their own leadership and their own funding and make their own decisions. Why Why is there one Congress? There should be, forget about having more black people in Congress. Why don't we have black ruling Congresses and a Latino Congress? In fact, why don't we just split up all the nations into the various groups of people if nationalism is wrong? Then just have all of the different nations with their own governments and their own land and their own territories and their own nations. Oh, shit. Wait. Nationalism is bad, but certain groups should have their own representation because tribalism is wrong. You can see the you can see the logical fist fuck that happens here, right? Tribalism is bad, but we want all of the various groups to have their own representation. Right. Right. We need more people to represent the interests of X people because it's wrong to uh, engage in any kind of tribalist behavior. Okay. Okay. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Thanks for posting that. Lucifer Sam in the Discord. Well done. Great video. Thanks so much. Got another one here for you. This was posted earlier. Uh, Jeff Daniels, who came to prominence playing a legally retarded man alongside Jim Carrey. He was on MSNBC in a suit today. Have a little That's what I see when I look at Trump's rallies. That's when I see the lies spewing at these people spewing. and people going, I got to believe in something. And he said he'd bring my manufacturing job back and she didn't and I'm all in. But at the end of the day, aside from, yeah, I don't want to pay taxes, it's race. <laughs> it's race. This is about, this is about the Republican Party. Shut up, white man. Why does this white man get a platform? Or a wing of it. Going, this is our last chance to save the party. And if we don't... <laughs> I, like it. I like that it's a wing of the Republican Party. Even if you don't like Donald Trump, you have to at least deal in reality here. And the reality is 90% of the Republican voters, people who identify as Republicans, whatever, 90% of them are on board with Donald Trump and his agenda. Right, so he's he's he is the most popular Republican president among Republicans, even more so than Reagan now, believe it or not. So I, lo I love the fact it's just referred to as a wing. 
It's one hell of a fucking wing you got going. If it was a plane, one wing would be the size of a football field and the other would be a chicken chicken wing on the other side, barely moving. Oh, it's just a wing. It's just a wing of the Republican Party. It's just the fringe. <laughs> it's further further exacerbates my long-held view that the whole point of modern culture and modern media is to make people who have certain views that run against corporate lines, whether they're on the left or the right, incidentally, uh, that the whole point of this is to make you feel isolated and alone and on the fringe and nobody agrees with you. And, you know, if you just come to the group, like the tribal group, we hate tribalism, but everybody needs to be on our side for some reason. If you just come back home, come to the tribe, then everything will be all right. Just shut up, do what you're told, right? the end of the Republican Party. And the only way they could do that was to tap the race button and say, go ahead, it's okay. And he did. And they did. And that was the only card they had left to play, and they played it. Mm. And they aren't going to go quietly. And that's... The only card they had left was the race card. (laughs) Jeez. I don't know. There's been a lot of people playing the race card over the last three or four decades, though, hasn't there? Let's be honest. Again, let's deal in reality. If playing the race card indicates the last possible move that you have, then some people have been playing on their last chip for 40 fucking years. Race, 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 race. Everything is racist. So if the race card means the last possible move, then they've really some people have been really stringing this out for a lot longer than they otherwise should have. Uh, this is the president in a rally yesterday, I believe. Democrats even want to give welfare and free health care to anyone who crosses our border. They want free health care, free education, free anything. Eisenberg, did you just call me a wingnut? <laughs> There's no need to be like that, pal. <laughs> That's okay. You stick to the idea that it's just a wing of the Republican Party. A 90% approval a wing, a fringe movement. You, 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 you stay there. That's fine. This this wing nut is well and truly far and far and wide okay with uh, your banter. Please stick around. Republicans believe we should take care of our own people, our citizens first. We have no choice. That's why we don't want them to come, and that's why my administration has published a new rule to ensure our limited supply of public housing is safeguarded for low-income Americans, not for illegal aliens who are fighting to get it. I mean, I can't believe that health care for illegal citizens is even on the table. That just makes no sense to me. So anybody who enters the country at any point gets free health care, free education. Why? We had a report here. I was watching some Australian taxpayer-funded news yesterday, and I, I looked for the I looked for the news report today, but I couldn't find it. <clears throat> and one of the Greens leader, a guy named Richard Di Natale, was arguing that because we had a situation here a couple of years ago where a whole bunch of people got kicked out of Parliament because they held dual citizenships, right? And there's a rule on the books here in Australia that you're not allowed to be in Parliament if you have a dual citizenship. Apparently, people who wrote this document a couple of hundred years ago, thought it might be a little bit unfortunate, 
a little bit, you know, questionable if somebody has a dual allegiance to another country at the same time as they're running the government here. I know, right? Fucking racists. So he was saying that we need a referendum in this country because to expect people to run for the government of Australia to only have one allegiance to the country that they're in government for was backward and racist and stupid. <laughs> I couldn't believe My mouth was open watching this. I'm like, really? This is the fight that they want to have? This is insane. <laughs> You ask people that aren't even engaged with Australian politics and they'll say, no, I think it's a good idea that people uh, only have one passport, that being an Australian passport when they run for government in Australia. Like, I don't have any problem with that. Unbelievable. Uh, Maisie Hirono today, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us, by the way. This is the Daily Boogie. Back for another week. Maybe I'm maybe I'm way off track here. Maybe I'm a bit of a dinosaur. But does anybody else have a problem with a politician speaking to thirteen-year-old girls, telling them about abortions and stuff? It's like I know I know we're trying to sexualize them younger and younger. But can can the abortion conversation just at least wait until they're pregnant, which should be about six months from now? I mean, if you're going to have sex, if you're going to get pregnant, at least wait until you're fourteen. At least. 13-year-old, getting abortion support from 13-year-old girls. <laughs> wow. Wow. Right? Am I wrong? I don't get it. Like, I, I, I thought that's a little bit of an overreach, isn't it? At, at least let the 13-year-old girls find out on their own. <laughs> it is creepy, isn't it? There you go. Maisie Hirono doing her best, looking after the youth vote. Think of the children. Think of the children getting pregnant. <laughs> Don't think of the children getting pregnant. You, you could be arrested. If it wasn't done in a classroom, you could be arrested for doing stuff like that. Anyway, maybe we can get her locked up. EU, EU leaders sound alarm over populist election threat. Yes, we're about two days away from the European elections which are largely symbolic in most cases, considering most of the hardcore decisions come from an entity called the EU Commission and not the EU Parliament. But, you know, symbolism has its place. They keep telling us that certain flags are wrong, certain symbols are wrong, certain symbols need to be shut down, certain symbols need to be done away with, certain symbols encourage hate, certain symbols encourage violence, certain symbols push, you know, hated, hatred ideology... So I guess then if the vote for European Parliament is to be largely symbolic, then why don't we throw up a couple of symbols then? Okay? Little okay sign there. Two days before voting begins in European parliamentary elections, national leaders are scrambling to mobilise their supporters to resist a populist challenge. European governments fear a good showing for Eurosceptics in the vote. Oh, it's all a fear campaign. 
there you go. Fear campaigns no longer, no longer the the wheelhouse of the right wing parties, ladies and gentlemen. Now the left have their own fear campaigns, fear of the right, <laughs> which begins on Thursday and runs to Sunday. Will disrupt Brussels decision making. Oh, we would, we can't have that. We must not have that. Opinion polls predict a significant advance for nationalist and populist forces opposed to closer European Union integration and threatening mainstream reform efforts. Why would anybody be against further integration of European Union member states? I mean, in the UK, for example, it's already upwards of 80% of the laws that apply in the UK are no longer written by the UK government. Did you know that? They're written by the EU Commission, which is in Brussels. Different country, different culture. A whole bunch of unelected bureaucrats deciding. French uh, President Emmanuel Macron called the vote the most important European parliamentary election since the first in 1979 and warned the EU faces, quote, an existential threat. Got a little couple of little news reports here to go over. First up, La France. France's European elections are shaping up to be something of a rerun of the 2017 presidential campaign. Emmanuel Macron's pro-EU centrist party and the anti-EU far-right party of Marine Le Pen are... <laughs> the, framing, the framing begins before you can even take a sip of coffee. Emmanuel Macron's pro-European centrist party versus Marine Le Pen's far-right anti-immigrant hate party. The anti-EU party. Our opinion polls suggest in the lead for votes a duel of opposing visions of Europe and a reflection of growing divisions in France. One of the, my favourite things about calling Marine Le Pen, Marine Le Pen, uh, far right, is you have to ignore all of her economic policies. Because in any sane, rational person's view, Marine Le Pen is, her economic po policies are burgeoning on socialism. So she's the... She's the world's first far-right socialist, apparently. <laughs> Let's carry on. At this Paris market, some say they're worried about immigration. You know why? You know why they have to ignore her European policy, uh, her economic policies being teetering on the edge of socialism? Because if they admit that she has a lot of socialist policies and they call her a far-right racist, then they're going to have to call her a national socialist. And you know what happens when you call people national socialists, right? <laughs> national socialism is supposed to be on the right. But here we have a nationalist who has many socialist uh, economic policies. Well, let's just call a far right and ignore the economics of it all. Climate change and the cost of living. I'm totally sick of politicians with their big salaries. They're supposed to defend us workers, but they do nothing for us. Since Macron's been in power, we're struggling to live. It's important to vote for Europe because there are countries... I mean, this old lady clearly represents, clearly represents the angry white young male vote, doesn't she? Isn't that great? <laughs> the, the angry white neo-Nazis of France, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Sweet old ladies selling lobsters on the, on the street markets. 
It's important to vote for Europe because there are countries where populist governments have come to power and it would be stupid to let that continue. The far right won France's the last right. European elections in 2014. Since then, anti-immigration populist parties have flourished in Europe and Brexit has rattled the bloc, buoying Le Pen and her nationalist allies. We're experiencing a historic moment and all the signs show that we... So there was a comment in the chat there, she's a white nationalist, yes, but that's very cheeky of you uh, because she's not anti-other people, right? She is a white person who happens to be a nationalist, just like the nationalist of Africa would be called black nationalist and the nationalist of China would be Chinese nationalist. Yes, she is a white person who is a nationalist, but she's ultimately a French nationalist. You see the difference? Do you see the very subtle, nuanced distinction that just goes over way too many people's heads? Conveniently, I suspect, because most of them wouldn't be that stupid, I don't think. They like to act stupid and pretend like it's the same thing, but that doesn't necessarily make it so. We are on the eve of great political change in Europe. The idea of a Europe that denies the right of nations to exist, the authoritarian vision of an imprisoning EU have been massively rejected. French presidents rarely publicly campaign in European elections, but Macron's breaking with tradition. He says Europe's in crisis and he's fighting to save it. Oh, save Europe. I want to reform the EU. I want to accelerate the integration on some issues. I think on currency, on digital, on climate action, we need more Europe. Ah. I want the EU to be more protect protective. For Emmanuel Macron, these elections are an opportunity not only to campaign for a united Europe, but also to try and boost his personal popularity in France after a particularly challenging year domestically. Emmanuel Macron has had a difficult six-month period with the yes. yellow vests and... Uh, uh... <laughs> this, this is the guy who's going to save Europe. He can't even stop people wearing yellow vests marching in the streets. Every weekend there is a new rally, a new protest. The guy who can't even save Paris is going to save Europe. Okay, okay, okay. Like, is, is my cynicism going too far here? It's just like when these politicians want to come out, and yes, internet regulation again. We're going to, we're going to fix the internet. We're going to get all the hate off the internet. We're going to regulate the internet. And I, I, I'll bring up the same argument that I always bring up. These people can't even fix where people should pee in public toilets. They are having arguments about which hole people should shit in when they use a public toilet based on how they identify. And these are the same people who are going to fix the internet worldwide. Give me a break. Give me a fucking break. I am Emmanuel Macron. I believe in Europe, especially... Uh, action on climate change and I want to fix Europe. I'm going to save Europe. The European election is important that we oppose the far right. I'm going to save Europe. Emmanuel, they're tipping over government cars in Paris right now. Today, like right, like today, yesterday. Emmanuel, nobody likes you. He is the most unpopular French president of all time on record. I mean, they were even beheading people that were more popular than Emmanuel Macron a couple of hundred years ago. That's that's not hyperbole. <laughs> Guys, French leaders who have been dragged out by their ankles, kicking and screaming, dragged through the town square where the peasants could come out and hurl tomatoes at them, who were then brought up to the dais and 
received a very close shave from Le National Razor, aka the guillotine, had higher popularity than Emmanuel Macron does. And this is the guy that's going to save Europe. Okay. Okay, Emmanuel. Okay, Manny. Good job, bro. European elections. Can social democracy survive? We're just, we're just in the era of, you know, having, having all of these words thrown in like a swingers club and an orgy happen. And there are disgusting mongoloid babies that are being born from all of these different words having disgusting, deplorable sex with each other and then popping out something that's an abomination. Oh, oh, the hell is that? The hell is social democracy? Love all the old gothic shit in France. Um, somebody earlier actually on UK Neil's, oh no, it was Aussie Nick's scope. You should follow Aussie Nick. Good conversations. He does little call-ins. Um, somebody on that chat tried to tell me that the BBC is pro-Brexit. Hey, you know, respectfully, I nearly fell out of my chair. <laughs> what? Really? Where are you getting this from? Let's carry let's see how pro pro-Brexit the BBC is. Okay, well, let's start with um, disunity on the left. And to what degree did it mean that you couldn't retain power? Well, I, I served as prime minister for three years. Maybe we will be back. Maybe not. This is not my priority. My priority today is a great cultural fight against populism, against the refuse of dialogue. Uh cultural fight against populism. Now, I might even have a little bit of sympathy with people being skeptical of populism as a concept because populism, again, now that we live in an age where people are vastly undereducated and philosophically inept, populism isn't necessarily the wheelhouse of the right. Populism can, There can be left-wing populism and right-wing populism. But the framing is constant. It's ever-present. Oh, populism? A lot of people really agree with doing something? That must be right-wing hatred, right? That's right-wing bigotry. That's xenophobia. I mean, in a democracy, if we want to call it a democracy in the EU, which it isn't necessarily considering most of the decisions are made by the EU Commission, which is unelected bureaucrats who vote themselves, uh, you know, they pay essentially no tax, they can't be removed, they have a job for life, it comes with all little lurks and perks that taxpayers pay for, you'll be pleased to know. Um, if we want to call it a democracy, then shouldn't populism be the thing that is the most, what most people want? Therefore, that is what you should do. Isn't that the thing that you should do then if most people want it in a democracy? But no, social social democracy, you see. It's socialist, it's, it's socialist sensibility with the velour, the, the veil of democratic decision-making, but it's not. Prima vengono gli italiani. 
With campaigning at full tilt in dozens of countries, the populist right could become the second biggest bloc oh. in the European Parliament. How awful. Second, that is, to the centre-right. <laughs> so with the electoral ground shifting, what on earth happened to the left, to social democracy? <laughs> what happened to the left? What happened to the left? The populist right is going to become the second biggest, biggest voting bloc behind the centre-right? I mean, what the hell happened to the left? Okay, where do you want to start? The over-socialisation of the economy, that could be one. Uh, overreach on social control laws such as hate speech, whatnot, clamping down on people's freedom. How about, how about telling anybody who has uh, an inkling toward their own national identity that they're a Nazi? We, can, we, can we start there? What, what happened? What on earth happened to the left? Everything was going so swimmingly before these Nazis showed up. You know what I mean? I would have gotten away with it too if it wasn't for you meddling Nazi kids. Mass immigration from third world countries. Increasing taxation to the point where people can barely afford to eat. Right? What happened? What happened to the left? Enforcing upon them ridiculous things like here's a, here's a fun one for you for the people who want action on climate change. They don't actually ever say what action necessarily means, but that's not the point because people just like the idea of somebody doing something. They don't really care about the details, unfortunately. So for the people who want action on climate change, the German government for the last 10 years, they, they've been doing action on climate change and they did so by uh, reducing the amount of, like increasing the amount of renewable energy and decreasing the amount of non-renewable energy. This actually resulted in more CO2 being pumped out because because they had to fire up more coal-fired power stations because the government-enforced renewable energy targets weren't being reached. <laughs> so they actually increased their CO2 output. Amazing, right? But the climate change one is, is very special because it's like, you have to do what we say or else. It's like, oh, okay. If you don't do what we say, then you're a denier who should be shunned. Okay, let's do what they say. More CO2 comes out and they're like, that's not our fault. <laughs> we didn't do it. We, we had nothing to do with that. That's not our fault. Their hold on European national governments has slipped. We have the votes of the people. You've got the votes of nobody. And now they struggle for relevance across Young the continent. Young Tony Blair there. Old Tony Blair The old Blair best here. solutions aren't solutions and people want change. So that's where social democracy has got to be. If it gets there, by the way, ah. it'll revive itself completely. Yes. The man, the man who once, um, the man who was on record as supporting the invasion of Iraq publicly, the man who was more reviled by people on the left than even George W. Bush is the guy who's going to now preach about how to, <laughs> how to protect the left wing of politics in Europe. It's <laughs> just like, job, job well done. We're going to save Europe. <laughs> These people don't even know how their own side hates them. They, 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 they are fundamentally unaware. As one political watcher once told me, these people watch the world go by through the bulletproof windows of their chauffeur-driven cars. And they want to preach about things like social democracy. Saving Europe. Go to Deutschland, das Vaterland. 
The Solverein complex in the Ruhr is a World Heritage Site, a testament to an industrial past, and indeed to a type of class-based politics that used to define elections across Europe. Somebody in the chat, Piper, I think she said, uh, four out of ten people in America want socialism. Perhaps the best way to fix that would to be give them socialism for a few decades. Um, you know, once upon a time, lots of people in Russia and Eastern European states wanted socialism too. After about six or seven decades of having the thing that they wanted, now they very much do not want it. In fact, the most support for the EU sceptic parties in Europe is where? Eastern European, formerly behind uh, the, the formerly part of the Soviet bloc. The biggest support that the AFD has, which is the alternative for Deutschland, which is the Eurosceptic party in Germany, is in Eastern Germany. The people who had to live under communism and socialism for the last 60 years are the ones who are least likely to want it now, believe it or not. So if four out of 10 people in the United States want socialism, perhaps that's the way to, that's the way to do it. Let's just have socialism for about 60 years. That'll fix it. <laughs> What's wrong with that? <laughs> Deep mind coal, like the industrial proletariat, is all but vanished from this German heartland. All but vanished. With the closure of the industries came the dissolution of a wider political and social complex. Uh. Trade union branches, working men's clubs, brass bands, you name it. This looks like toxic, toxic German culture, if you ask me. And the scattering of hundreds of thousands of voters in all directions, to the far left, to the Greens, but also, and most significantly, in a place like this, to the right. Ah, see, if the voters, if the voters scurry to the far left and the Greens, that's not a problem. But when those very same boat voters scurry to the right, oh dear, looks like looks like we've got another Nazi movement on our hands. Oh no. This is the last working pit in the area, but even this one's going by June. Guido Ryle has worked here for years, and his... See, this, this little documentary is touching on it, but it'll probably brush it aside. This is a point I made on Trust and Verify the other night with my comrade James. If you want to watch that show, follow at TAV Show on Twitter. And I was making the point rather inelegantly because it's always tough you know, when you're on a show with somebody else, like I feel like I've only got a few minutes to get my point across and then it's hard to, you know, just dribble on like I can do on here. But I suspect, and I don't think I'm alone in this suspicion, you know, I'm not a crusader here by any stretch of the imagination. The main driving force for this political movement, this entity, whatever, however you want to frame it. And, you know, we saw Jeff Daniels earlier saying, it's all about race, it's all about race, it's all about race. I suspect that's the way it looks in his bubble in his Hollywood sphere, where all of the people, that's just what he takes in. It's all about race. It's all about race. That might be the way he chooses to view it. But I suspect it's less about race. I think immigration is a large part of it. But why is immigration a large part of it? Is it because people look different or is it because of economic factors like access to work, right? Access to housing, more immigration means housing is more expensive. It means more competition for jobs, especially at the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Because uh, let's face it here, for every doctor, for every brain surgeon, for every rocket scientist that's being brought in from the third world, they bring with them a one to two to three to four to 500, a thousand people who are blue collar workers. 
right? That's the trend for mass immigration. So I suspect framing it all as race and you just hate people who look different is a very shallow and politically convenient way of framing a larger, more broader economic discussion. It's an economic complaint, I think, at the heart of most of this stuff. And immigration feeds right into that. In the areas where the AFD has the highest support, you'll be unsurprised to know if you listen to this podcast that levels of unemployment are high for young men. Young men in their, you know, between the ages of 18 to 35, highest levels of unemployment in Germany. Um, Less access to housing, right? More socioeconomic downward pressure, they would call it. And that's who's voting for the AFD the most. Now, you'd have to be particularly, you'd have to be a simpleton or being deliberately dishonest to say that it's just about racism. Because clearly it's not. If you look at the numbers and if you look at the data, it's more than racism. It's it's economic factors that are driving many things, including pessimism about mass immigration. Political journey began with the natural party of the working class, the Social Democrats. Now, one of the biggest, one of the biggest uh, complaints that you can have about the centre-left or whatever you want to call them, collectively in the Western world, whether it be the United States, Germany, Austria, France, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, it doesn't matter. One of the biggest complaints that you'll hear from people on the left is that the left-wing, the nominally left-wing parties have abandoned their bread-and-butter constituency being the working class. And they've abandoned them to chase, you know, these little, these pissy little social cultural issues like, for example, which hole people should piss in. They've been chasing those things down the rabbit hole instead of taking care of their number one priority in years gone by, which is the working class. Now, if the centre-left was genuine about protecting the interests of the working class, they would be against mass immigration. Full stop. End of discussion. End of discussion. Because mass immigration puts uh, a lot of their constituents at risk of economic hardship. Like the fact, the fact is that the, the less competition there are, there is for jobs, right? The more people are going to pay workers because it's harder to get better workers when there are 5,000 people going for one job as opposed to actually having to go out and find the best people for the job. So if the left-wing parties were serious in their conviction about caring for working-class people, they would come out against mass immigration. Of course, you see the opposite. You see the exact opposite. We want more mass immigration. And in fact, the uneducated blue-collar workers that they used to subscribe to representing have now become the ignorant regnecks and neo-Nazis that need to be eviscerated from public life. It's more than just they've ignored the concerns and complaints of the working class they used to represent. They have actively turned on them. Actively. They have become enemies of them. Now, whether that's, you know, whether that's over-sensationalising or whether that's taken out of context, it doesn't matter. There's an old saying in politics, perception is reality. 
And the perception for the working classes around the Western world is and has been for the last five to ten years and is only getting stronger that the nominally left-wing political parties in their governments are actively working against their best interest. So if you are in charge of a centre-left party in one of these countries, I'm telling you, the clock is now ticking. Your time is running up. Your support is only shrinking. This is an untenable situation. And just call it coming out and calling the people you used to represent Nazis and bigots and, bigots and racists is not going to work anymore. Sozialdemokrat, mein Opa, niemand war irgendwas anderes wie Sozialdemokrat. Und wir haben uns immer gut aufgehoben gefühlt bei dieser Partei. As the other miners clock off, Guido seems to be on good terms with them. An easy camaraderie unaffected by his political shift from the Social Democrats to the Alternative for Deutschland, or AFD. He's a long-time Social Democrat now spruiking the Alternative for Deutschland. I mean, you know, again, Steve Bannon, whether you like him or dislike him, probably a different discussion, different debate, and probably irrelevant to this point. Steve Bannon was a guy who uh, grew up a Democrat. How many of the most vocal uh, MAGA supporters actually grew up as Democrats? I'll tell you, there's a whole bunch of them living in the Rust Belt. Those Rust Belt states voted Democrat for 30 years. 30, not three, not one cycle, 10. 30 years. They were voting Democrat. They now support Donald Trump. And again, whether it's real or fake, you can have another discussion about that. But perception is reality. <clears throat> the perception that the working classes are being ignored by the nominally centre-left party, not just in America, but Canada, the UK, Australia. In our most recent Australian election, we now have people on the Labour side of the aisle asking, why aren't the working people voting for us anymore? What the hell happened here? I can tell you. I can tell you why. You wanted to increase taxes to the point of sending poor working class people broke. And every time they express their concerns about, you know, uh, mass immigration, you call them racists. Why the hell, why the hell would you vote for them? Like voting for you at that point, if you are one of these people, is akin to Stockholm syndrome. Let's carry on. With its bracing right-wing message. Also ich glaube, mein Vater und mein Großvater würden mich verstehen. Und ich sehe auch jetzt in den Reaktionen, die Arbeiter, die verstehen mich. Und die Arbeiter wählen heute die AfD. Die Arbeiterschaft, das ist die Basis der AfD. Denn es wird ja immer gesagt, alte, abgehängte Männer wählen die AfD. Also die AfD wählen tatsächlich überwiegend Männer, die sind aber zwischen 40 und 60 Jahre alt und die stehen im Leben. Die erwirtschaften den Wohlstand in unserem Landesrat. Das sind die Leistungsträger. The AFD is now making inroads in the Ruhr, but its real political heartland is across Germany and the former East. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Anybody who watches this show long term knows that I don't really pre-watch any of the material because I want to watch it the first time with you. And I just went on that big spiel. I could have saved my breath. Just went on that big spiel before about where the AFD support comes from, and it comes from Eastern former Eastern Bloc states. And there you go. Most of their support, East Germany. Former, former Soviet East Germany. To the rise of the AFD is the collapse of the SPD or Social Democratic Party from 40% of the vote nationally in 1998 to 20% two years ago wow. and probably even less in the coming polls. We went to the Thuringian town of Gotha for the annual May Day celebration. The Armut is not to house 
wo der industrielle Kahlschlag gewütet hat. Even on this workers' holiday, support for the old left is very thin on the ground here. Es ist auch schwer in der Öffentlichkeit. <laughs> I've said it before and I'll say it again. These socialist democrat type parties are increasingly the wheelhouse. This is increasingly the domain of, and present company excluded here, it's increasingly the domain of angry ideologically perverse baby boomers who are still living through acid trips that they developed in the 1960s and the young students who most believe their bullshit through university. Because who are the university lecturers? Who are the professors? Right? It's not 30-year-olds. So it's it's the domain of the young and easily influenced and a few generations up the ladder, the baby boomers. These are the people most in support of socialism and social democrats and whatnot. Uh, I wrote an article about it a couple of years ago, local elections in Germany. Angela Merkel's most vociferous support came from people 65 and over. 65 and over were most likely to vote for Angela Merkel. So it's all a hate campaign. Uh, this also happened today. It's, there's more milkshakes getting thrown. Sargon of Akkad will be very disappointed that he is no longer <laughs> he is no longer the only guy who's getting milkshakes thrown at him. Sorry, Sargon. Sorry, Carl. Now this is Daily Mail. This is the milkshake man. Do you see the hero worship that goes on here? Somebody threw a milkshake at Nigel Farage. He gets interviewed on TV. Do you remember the guy who tried to rush the stage during a Donald Trump rally? And he was put up by CNN. It's like, oh, tell us why you did it. Oh, brave young man. What a brave young man. Right? Look at this garbage. <laughs> and again, can, can we get any more stereotypical here? I'm just going to come out and say it. I'm not having a go at the guy personally, but just because sometimes I love when stereotypes become real life and real life becomes stereotypes. Who would be the type of person to throw a milkshake at Nigel Farage during a campaign rally? Could it possibly be a a balding, bold frame glasses gamer <laughs> with a with a beard? Could that possibly be the guy? Like if you had to put him in a lineup. You know, there was a guy wearing a suit, there was a guy like shaved, there was a young girl, and you saw this chap standing here, possibly a virgin, wearing the bold frame glasses, balding beard, and a and a computer game shirt. And you would say, Now, who do you think attacked Nigel Farage? I, don't, I think nine out of ten people would, would pick this guy. But of course, stereotypes are always wrong. <laughs> don't get me wrong, stereotypes never, never true. Um, do you want to be Holding fat ass. I think it's a, it's a right protest against people like him. It's uh, my protest. The pile and the racism that he spouts out uh, in this country is far more damaging than a, than a bit of milkshake to his front. Oh, yeah. <laughs> These people. <laughs> Watch Dick. My milkshake brings all the votes to the yard and damn right it's sweeter than yours. That was Calais, wasn't it? I was in love with that woman when she came out with that. Love. 
but I mean, yeah, because the things that Nigel Farage says is more damaging than a milkshake, so I'm allowed to throw a milkshake at him. I, sh- I should be, I should be a hero. Like, I guess if everything's all relative, then let's say, okay, how about this? What if somebody attacked this guy and you know violently, you know, beat his uh, balding head with a club or something? Just say hypothetically, if somebody did that, would an adequate defence be well? Hitting somebody in the head with a club isn't as bad as killing them. So what's the problem? Sure, your officer. I was driving 100 miles an hour over the speed limit, but that's not as bad as 105 miles an hour, so I should be free to go. (laughs) He used the tools he had available to him. Yes, we are a long way from the workers' revolution of the left, comrades. Once upon a time, it was the hammers and the sickles and, and and the yellow vests of the workers standing up against the capitalist pigs like Nigel Farage. But these days, it's the fat men, the balding men with the bold frame glasses wearing computer game t-shirts, drinking milkshakes. They're the ones, they're the ones that need to be stopped. I've got the guy over there claiming I've cut his finger. All I did, I took the cap off the, um, the milkshake. So I didn't throw anything solid, I just threw the liquids. There's no way that guy's been injured in any way. He's saying I've been kicking and pushing. There was none of that. All I did was just throw the milkshake. All I did was throw the milkshake. There was no solids. I didn't throw the cup. (laughs) Look at this guy. (laughs) He he almost looks disappointed to be alive, doesn't he? I, I, I didn't even do anything too bad. I just threw the milkshake. I didn't even throw the cup. I recycled the cup because I care about climate change. But it's just the liquids. <laughs> what flavour was it? Uh, it was uh, banana and uh, salted caramel. <laughs> it was banana and salted caramel. Actually, this guy does deserve a round of applause because imagine the sacrifice. Imagine the sacrifice he made. He sees Nigel Farage, he looks down at the milkshake. He sees Nigel Farage, he looks down at the milkshake. He's like, man, I really hate bigotry and racism and fascism, but I really love banana milkshakes. Like, what what am I going to do? What to do? What to do? Oh, no. (laughs) But in the end, in the end, his, his civic duty got the better of him. And he had to hurl that delicious, milky, creamy treat. And, you know, in an effort to stand up against bigotry and fascism. Well done, young man. It was the hardest sacrifice to make. I don't want to hear about veterans. I don't want to hear people fighting wars, giving up their lives for what they believe in as making any kind of sacrifice. No way. You try being a ghastly, overweight gamer dude who probably has never touched a boob, giving up a beautiful salted caramel milkshake. That's sacrifice, baby. That's sacrifice. And he had to waddle back to the store to buy another one. Adding insult to injury. Um, so I just wonder why are people so upset about Nigel Farage? What is it that Nigel Farage is saying that has got people so angry? This was a little Brexit rally earlier today. Let's, let's see from the man himself. Let's see what's so dangerous about this chap. But perhaps most important of all... What we've managed to do in those five and a half weeks since we launched in that factory in Coventry is we've managed 
to give millions and millions of people in this country who were frustrated, upset, angry, on the point of saying they may never engage with the democratic process again. So sick to death were they of the shenanigans in Westminster. And you know what we've given them in the Brexit party? We've given them hope, optimism and belief in this country and in the democratic process. N- Nigel, sorry, sorry. Have to pull up Nigel there. He, he mispronounced hate, bigotry and racism. What did he say? Hope, optimism. <laughs> sorry. It must be it must be my poor English. But I distinctly heard uh, hate, bigotry and racism there. But it's worth, it's worth reminding ourselves of why we're here. I mean, I can scarcely believe that I'm here. 20 years I've been in that European Parliament. 20 years of getting up. One or two of you may have seen the speech. Yeah, UK Neil in the chat. How dare he give us hope? Remember hope and change? That's a line I often say to people who, you know, if people come at me and say, Donald Trump is fundamentally changing America and the world for the worst. You know, if you vote for this particular party on the right, then you're changing everything. They're going to change everything. And I'm like, well, aren't we? what happened to not being afraid of change? Remember that? Don't be afraid of change. Mass immigration, shifting demographics, changing the economy, turning the, the economy on its head and becoming a socialist state. Don't be afraid of change, bro. You're just afraid of change. You're an old, bigoted white person clinging to the past. Stop clinging to the past, man. That's the beautiful paradox that comes along with progressive politics and people who preach progressive politics is if you, because you always have to be changing. You always have to, that's that's inherent in the definition of progress, right? Progress means constant change for the sake of change. Now, if you are, if you are a progressive and you find yourself arguing against change, guess what? You just became a conservative. <gasps> you are now a conservative. If you're saying you're not allowed to change anything from the Obama era, you're a conservative now. Hey, how do you like that? You just became you just became a Nazi, bro. Just like that. The brown shirt is in the mail. <laughs> Look, I'll, I'll change. I'll progress. <laughs> I, I thought I wanted to bring up a little bit of vintage Farage. I want to show you a bit of vintage Farage. See, if you're like me, and I suspect UK Neil and a few others in the chat are like me, people who have been watching the Eurosceptic movement for a long time, none of this comes as any surprise to us. You know, we predicted the Brexit vote. We predicted Donald Trump winning. We weren't surprised by any of it because we could see it coming a long, a long way away. A lot of people have begun to begin, uh, have begun to get engaged in politics since the election of Donald Trump. And that's great. That's good. Pile more on the ship. Let's go. Let's do this. So for those of us who are watching, you know, European politics for a while, none of this comes as any great shock. This is Nigel Farage, I think, back in 2014. So this is five years ago. Vintage Farage. On behalf of the EFDD, I now give the floor to Mr Farage. Thank you and good morning, everybody. Uh, If this is European democracy in action, as we've heard this morning, I suggest we have a rethink. Uh, we're told that as a result of the European elections, Mr Juncker here is the nominee. Well, I can tell you that absolutely nobody in the United Kingdom knew that when they voted in the European election, it had anything to do with the next nominee. And the truth of it is, your voters 
actually in your countries didn't realise what this process was. Mr Juncker's name did not appear on any single ballot paper. Sounds like democracy And the whole me. thing has been the most extraordinary stitch-up. I mean, the loser, Mr Schultz, gets the consolation prize of being an unprecedented second-term president in the Parliament. I mean, it's all just a pretense that we're increasing democracy. Now, of course, I'll be told, ah, yeah, but hang on a second. The European Parliament, the elected bit of the European institution, did actually have a say and did decide whether Mr Juncker was to become Commission President or not. Well, let's just have a think about the process we're about to engage in. We've all got to be asked to vote, and we've got one candidate to vote for. <laughs> I mean, it's like good old Soviet times, isn't it? Surely democracy means you get rather more of a choice than one. No. But I think... No. Expecting to get more than one choice on a ballot is not democracy, Mr Farage. That's bigotry. That's racism. That's neo-Nazism. Far worse than that. Far worse than that. It is going to be a secret ballot. I mean, you really couldn't invent it, could you? Hard on the heels of a European election, our voters are not going to know how any of us have voted. And I would say to you, Mr Schultz, as President of the Parliament, the Parliament shouldn't vote in secret. The whole point of being publicly elected representatives is we should be held accountable for our actions to our own voters and to be asked to vote in secret. I think it's a, I think it's a huge insult to voters to ask us to vote in secret. I guess, I guess I guess he's in favour of people getting hit with milkshakes on the street, right? We should be held accountable to the, to our voters. This guy. Did it anyway. He's saying I've been kicking and pushing. There was none of that. All I did was just throw the milkshake. What flavour was it? It was uh, banana and. You pathetic man. <laughs> uh, so do you know who throws? Do you know who throws drinks at people when they're upset at upset at them? Hysterical women in restaurants. Now, whilst I'm sure, and I don't want to assume this guy's gender, whilst I'm sure he has spent far too much time in restaurants, don't get me wrong, I'm pretty sure he's not a hysterical woman. But that's what hysterical women do. How could you, you son of a bitch? And then throw the drink in your face, right? That's that's how women express rage in restaurants, by throwing drinks on people. <laughs> this guy's, this is your hero. This is your hero. This is the man to stand up to the, the, the nationalists and the bigots and the Nazis and the fascists. A guy throwing milkshakes at people. Caramel. Caramel. I was actually quite looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> you gave up a lot, didn't you? <laughs> He's so proud of himself, this fucking idiot. Milkshake boy. Now, I would have thought after the huge advances in the Eurosceptic vote, there might have been a rethink uh, somewhere in Brussels, but clearly that was not to be. Mr Cameron had a brief go and tried to oppose uh, your candidacy, uh, but he was uh, busy uh, succeeding with reshuffles in Britain, but failing with reshuffles here. And Mrs Merkel, of course, crushed him because what the German Chancellor says goes in the modern Europe. So what of our nominee? Well, on the plus side, Mr. Juncker, you are a sociable cove uh, with a very much better sense of humour than most people I've met in Brussels. And there's no question even gives that the guy you are a political operator and you've even managed to, over the last couple of weeks, as you've gone round the political groups, change the mood music a bit. 
You've said that you don't believe in the United States of Europe. You don't believe in a common European identity. Look at the, look at the death stares he's getting to. <laughs> but I have to say, I didn't believe a word of it. And, <laughs> and today you've proven that actually you're stuck back uh, with the ideas of the old Europe. You talked about Monsieur Delors being a hero of yours. Well, I can understand that from your perspective. But you also talked about Mr. Mitterrand and Mr. Cole as being heroes of yours. Uh, I would have thought uh, a wartime collaborator and somebody who left German politics under a huge cloud of a massive party funding scandal should not be the kind of people that we should stand up as great models of virtue in modern Europe today. <laughs> Nobody gives a backhand slap like Nigel Farage. Um, I've got so much still, but I kind of want to wrap it up because I know we're getting a little bit late here. Who saw this story? More than 18,000 people signed petition to save family doctor facing acts for asking Muslim woman to lift her veil in the doctor's office. the video. Dr. Keith Wolverson, 52, yesterday gave his heartfelt gratitude to those who signed a petition supporting him. He hopes outrage from patients and medics will push regulators to issue clearer guidelines on how to deal with a religious clothing. Dr. Wolverson plans to end his 23-year career after being told he faces a general medical council investigation over the incident. What was the incident, you might ask? I'm glad you asked. He denies claims he uh, religiously discriminated against the woman by asking her to remove her niqab in an appointment. That's a niqab. He says he could not hear what she was saying about her sick child and she did not object when he made the polite request. But she complained later when her husband arrived at Royal Stoke University Hospital saying the GP was rude, gave her a dirty look and upset her. There you go. He couldn't, he couldn't understand what she was saying about her own sick child. He said, I'm sorry, can you please lift up your niqab so I can hear, so I can understand what you're saying? He needs to be removed. He's an evil bigot, this doctor, who treated her sick child. Needs to be kicked out. Needs to be investigated for religious discrimination. There you go. Horrifying, isn't it? Absolutely horrifying. One little story here that you might take interest to. There have been big protests at this school. People have been gathering at this school and taking their children out of the school because the school is teaching uh, LGBTQ lesson plans that the parents disapprove of. Now, you'll be interested to know <clears throat> that this aren't, these aren't your average collection of intolerant, homophobic white people. This is a school with a very high immigrant population and a high Islamic population. And it is these parents who are, you know, walking into the school and taking their children out of classes and saying, we're not going to put up with this. We're not going to tolerate it. But rather than being framed as, you know, the homophobic, intolerant white Christians that is normally the case, now all of a sudden we're all in favour of protests. Now all of a sudden we're all in favour of parents deciding what their children are being taught. Isn't that the, isn't that the darndest thing? Isn't that the darndest thing? And incidentally, funnily enough, uh, in the recent gay marriage vote we had here, now I live in the area of Sydney that has the highest Islamic population and I don't really have a problem with Muslims. I have a lot of Muslim friends. So I, I do 
find a lot of the reporting to be over-sensationalised, but that's not to say that there aren't issues and those these people would be the first to tell you that there are issues, right, if you actually talk to them. But um, in the area that I live, this was the area that was most against gay marriage. But it's also an area that is represented by left-wing politicians. So you had the funny, the funny incident of left-wing politicians coming out saying that anybody who votes against gay marriage is a homophobic bigot, and then six out of ten, seven out of ten of their own constituents, largely from immigrant backgrounds, were the ones voting against. So they became the the hateful bigots. They became the homophobes, their own people. <laughs> so, of course, as a good friend as I was, I was sharing these articles relentlessly with my friends going, hey, look at this, your elected official hates you. He thinks you're a homophobic bigot. I'm like, fuck this guy. Fuck him. Because <laughs> they're very anti-PC around here, right? So just just one of those little idiosyncrasies that make life worth living. We represent the interests of, you know, the Islamic population and the immigrant population. Anybody who votes against gay marriage is a homophobic bigot. Wait, who voted against gay marriage? Oh, no. Oh, shit. Damn it. <laughs> now what are we going to do? <laughs> I Protests are getting angrier. Angrier. People from across the community around Anderton Park Primary School came to join in after this leaflet was sent out by the protest organisers. It's okay to be gay. You can have two more. Yes, yes, the vote passed nationally. Nationally, the vote passed. It was about 60-40. But like I said, in it was done on a district-to-district basis. And the districts that were most against it were the ones with the highest immigrant backgrounds and left-wing, safest left-wing seats. So the whole meme that the left are the ones who are most in favour of, um, you know, LGBTQ equality and marriage and all that kind of stuff is nominally false. It's the politicians on the left who are in favour of it, but by and large, their constituents are not. So they just they just do what they want. And when they say that they're representing the interests of their people, they are effectively lying because their people voted against the thing that they wanted and they ignored them anyway. So you can have two daddies. You can be a girl in a boy's body. And you can and you can transpose that onto the working class discussion that we had earlier. I mean you can this is this is so against the word of God. These men don't have children at the school but came to show their support. Homosexuality is a is a heinous, horrible thing. It's, it's not acceptable in Islam. Man, God created man and then he created woman for man's pleasure and for his companionship. He did not create man for man. I mean that is a disgusting act. But it's all right for your children to sit around the table and talk about gay lesbians uh, openly. That's fine. That's within the, your Christian maturity. But with us not with us not we don't accept it. We don't accept it. We Abdullah Balm is a parent and teacher from Batley in West Yorkshire. He's been in touch with the protest organisers here in Birmingham. He told me he's setting up a national campaign. We were creating a parent pack, um, something similar to this, yeah. Uh, on there there'll be some uh, WhatsApp groups that parents can join and uh, we're going to put it out there. I mean, this is the kind of material 
that's absolutely horrific for five-year-olds, seven-year-olds. Um, it's unbelievable if you read some of that material. So the books for what's the... What's wrong with it? Um, well, it's sexualising material and gender-confusing material. That's what's wrong with it. This is going to go national. Parents are going to complain like this. And schools had better get ready for it. These protests are being organised primarily by people who aren't parents at the school. Ah. Head teachers have told me that they're concerned about the kind of information that's being given to parents via WhatsApp groups and online about what's being taught in schools. They say ah. it's misinformation, ah. it's upsetting parents, yes. and it's not true. Ah, it's not true. None of it's true. The guy was just holding he was he was just holding the educational material right there in front of the camera. No, that's false. That's a lie. It's a misinformation. Don't believe what you read. It's all wrong. But I just find it a funny little situation where the very same people they have to then walk the line between, well, do we do we represent the immigrant populations or do we represent the LGBTQ? I don't know. I don't know. It's too tricky. It's too tricky. Yes, I know the chat has gone down for some reason. I've got no idea why. Just trying to log in again. See if we can get it back up. For some reason, apps apps are playing silly buggers with me, so I don't know. Um, I had a couple more stories. You know what? I think I'll leave them for tomorrow. Fun stuff. We've got squash tournaments that hand out vibrators. Who else have we got? Dan Aykroyd believes aliens are here and they're having sex with human women. Family defends a man arrested for setting a dog on fire. Calvin Klein commercials with people uh, making out with lesbian sex robots. I mean, it's all happening. So I think we'll save all of that stuff for tomorrow. <laughs> so thanks, everyone, for joining us. Remind, uh, reminder, if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, please head over to patreon.com forward slash boogie bumper. Become a subscriber by hitting the subscribe button on your preferred podcast player. And of course... If you would like to watch me make out with a lesbian sex doll, then you can do so by following me on Twitter at Boogie Bumper. Until next time, guys, stay calm, stay rational, God bless, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Follow Q. Thank you, Nisi. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Thanks for that video. Everyone be good, and if you can't be good, be good at it. European elections, we'll be watching them closely. We'll have updates as it comes along. Till tomorrow, guys.
Be good. Bye-bye.